Today I've been asked to speak on the topic of education of healthcare personnel for community health development. It's a huge, long title. Um, just a little bit about me. I'm Grace Tasler. I currently serve as the missions director for Nurses Christian Fellowship. We're a strategic ministry within InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, so, and we are also the Christian Professional Nursing Organization. So I work with nurses and nursing students who are interested in serving the poor either here or abroad. Um, so that's who I am. My background is that I taught nursing for 12 years before going to Uganda, East Africa in 1985 in the middle of the Civil War uh, to do community health development work. And um, I was there for six and a half years, the beginning of the AIDS crisis. So I had that imposed on my career, and it changed it um, dramatically as a result of a disease that had not been known when I was teaching nursing, and then came home to work in the state of Mississippi, um, the two uh, poorest counties of the poorest state in the Union. So um, we developed uh, a community health program there using community women to visit moms and babes and reduced infant mortality by over 50% um, in those two counties. So uh, I know that the lay health, the community health development approach works. Um, I think there's some evidence to support that. And since we're all about evidence-based health care, I um, wanted to talk a little bit about that. My colleagues um, have always been after me about how do we train uh, people, and especially they're interested in nurse practitioners and, and PAs, the mid-level providers, to do community health development. And I've always said that that's a little difficult <laughs> because they're, they're, they're educated for curative care and not doing the health promotion kind of thing. But then I was uh, a med surge nurse um, with a focus in women's health, and, and God uh, redirected my life uh, to focus on that. So we're going to talk a little bit about some of what's, what's going on there uh, today. Uh, one of the things I realized, I, I also participated in a conference at Fuller Seminary in the fall, and in preparing for that, um, they were asking me to talk about the work in Mississippi, and I was looking at community health development work, and it, I, it had never tweaked, you know, how some things you just <laughs> think, okay, uh, but um, I actually entered community health development uh, work shortly after the Alma-Ata Declaration um, in 1978. Uh, that's when I began to take courses and become interested in doing health promotion in the community. And, and I hadn't realized, <coughs> I hadn't made that connection, that it was as a result of the Alma-Ata Declaration and some of the work that had been done by missionary colleagues in the Christian Medical Commission, uh, Carl Taylor, who had been at uh, Hopkins for many, many years, and, and some of their, their work that uh, I had built on. And, and it was just kind of exciting for me to realize that in some ways I was in on the ground level of that and have seen it uh, come about and evolve. One of the things that we looked at um, for this was that the, the health care needs are really huge on the bottom rung in the area of health promotion and disease prevention that many of the diseases that we see, especially overseas, could easily be prevented um, through 
uh, simple measures like clean water and sanitation and immunizations and some of those basic, basic health care needs. And then uh, the, the next level, if you're into public health, is early uh, detection and treatment. And taking care of those basic, again, simple conditions before they be, get to be very big conditions and, and, and making them into major problems. And then at the top is those areas that for people who, who are sick and who have chronic diseases or have problems doing the, the rehab and treating of, of those multi-system illnesses that, that require care. So when you look at the population, those are, that's where the pyramid, as it is, of where the health care needs are. However, when you look at our resource allocation, it's just upside down. So for many years, we have focused on all that high-tech stuff, you know, the heart-lung transplants and, and the liver transplants and, and, and all of our wonderful things that we can do and, and do very well and, and are exciting and interesting. Um, that's where a lot of our money has gone. <laughs> That's where our resources have gone. We've educated people to do those things, specialty care. Um, the treatment and early detection piece in the middle, um, you know, we're, we're looking hard at raising up enough health care providers to even do uh, meet those basic needs in the community. Um, I know with uh, the Affordable Health Care Act, you know, we're looking at things like um, having enough nurse practitioners on, to have on-ramps into the healthcare delivery system, um, physician's assistants. We're, we're looking at educating many, many more of them because we don't have enough family practice doctors and, and on-ramps for the healthcare system. And then down here, um, early health promotion and, and and uh, disease prevention, we haven't really focused on that a whole lot. I think we're getting a little bit more now that we're talking about, you know, diabetes and obesity and some of those things and things that people should be doing to prevent those kinds of conditions. But they're already a huge problem in our population. And if we have been doing more of that earlier on, maybe we wouldn't have the problems that we're currently seeing. So that is where the resources have been. Now, what happened back in around 1978 um, was certainly right after um, colonies in Africa and other places had been granted independence um, that the mission hospitals that had been there supported by missionaries, um, they were concerned what was going to happen to them after the countries were no longer colonies that, and the missionaries, we weren't sure what was going to happen. And so they formed the Christian Medical Commission, which happened to be located in Geneva, Switzerland, and next door to the World Health Organization. And the head of the World Health Organization happened to also be a Christian. So he was conversing with the Christian Medical Commission and they decided to hold a conference about what was going to happen in the colonies to these mission hospitals, who was going to care for people. And, and they, while they initially were concerned about the hospitals, they recognized that they were asking the wrong question. The question would be, should be, how do we care for the people? 
And so they set up some principles. They're called Ama'ata principles. And by the way, I've lo- uploaded this PowerPoint um, to the website. So if you don't want to take heavy notes, it's, it's mostly there. But one of the first things they said was that the service for healthcare should be at the closest point in the community, not in a distant hospital. That we, we should try to get all those things that we can get taken care of at the closest point that is being in, impacted by that. So being out there in the community is a big, important piece. That the focus should also should be preventive as well as curative. You know, we can cure worms, we can cure diarrheal diseases, we can hand out worm medicine until the end of time. If people are still drinking bad water, they're still going to have worms and they're still going to have problems. So looking at prevention as well as um, the curative side of things. That the service should be by the lowest level provider appropriate to the task. And so whoever is is there should should be equipped to deal with that problem if it's a it's if it's a minor problem they should be able to care for it right there not going out to a hospital to a, or, or a clinic to seek care for that problem that there should be a tiered system of healthcare starting with the family and the community at the household level through a community based clinic and on to uh, primary, secondary, and tertiary care referral systems. So starting again at the community in the home, preferably in the home, and then working your way up and having most of your health care being available at, at the lowest level, not at the highest level. And I found this one interesting. They said there should be equity and service provision with a special emphasis on women. Uh, way back then, they were still recognizing that women uh, were essential to healthcare in, in, in around the, the world. That they were the primary providers of healthcare, and because mothers and people in the home are the are the ones that care for the children and provide the care for not only children but elderly often as well. So that was the principle that then became. If you have haven't lived as long as I have, <laughs> became known as Health for All by the year 2000. The goal was to achieve health, health for all by the year 2000. Now, that was a, when I went to Uganda in 1985, that seemed like a lofty goal, and I wasn't sure we were ever going to meet it, <coughs> which, of course, we never did. But I think it was still a worthy effort and a worthy goal. So looking at where healthcare services are, if they're going to be, um, and the kinds of things that are happening, where, where are they? Now, the primary place I said is in the home. And if your home looks like this one in the United States, if your home looks like my friend Margaret's home in Uganda, it is still a home, and that is where healthcare needs to take place. But what kind of, who provides that kind of healthcare? Parents and children. And in Uganda, I want to just say that don't overlook kids. They are great health advocates. You teach them how to hand wash, and they're going to be teaching all their little friends how to wash their hands. And and you teach them about brushing teeth, and they will teach everybody else about brushing teeth. Anything they learn, they want to share. 
So um, if you teach children, often it gets disseminated into the community very, very well. And, and we worked with a child-to-child uh, program in Uganda for the AIDS program. Um, very effective, very effective teaching children about how to prevent AIDS and how it happened. And they went through their communities and did that. Parents, very important. They are the keepers of the house. They have the finances. They know what they're going to spend their money on and what they're not going to spend it on. And they are often the people who uh, care for the, the illness in the, in the beginning. They have to decide whether they need to go to a clinic or not. What kinds of uh, health do they do? Well, nutrition, teaching good, healthy nutrition, teaching hygiene, teaching things like safety. And I think in, if you're looking at holistic health care with a W, um, that we need to talk about loving relationships and what does it mean uh, to be a mother and a father and children in a home and, and respecting one another and having those kinds of loving relationships Again, very, very critical to having healthy populations. If the health care is located in the community, who does that kind of health care? Well, social workers, police officers, rescue personnel, pharmacy, teachers and educators, they're all health care providers. We don't often think of them as such, but they really are. They, they have influence over people and what they decide about their health and how they're, they're working on things. <coughs> the type of health care that they provide is first aid, emergency care, and they often take care of the common illnesses that you can treat over-the-counter kind of things, the basic um, things that we all suffer from that need to have care. One of the things that we have overlooked as, as Christians, I think, is health care in the church. And there is a movement within nursing to do faith-based nursing or congregational parish nursing. And I think that that's a move in the right direction. Um, for many years, the church uh, was the health care provider. Um, nursing came out of the church. It was because nurses were deacons in the church called by God to care for the sick, dying, and injured. And so our, our, our whole profession has come out of the church. Um, but over time, the church relegated its responsibility to the professionals and has stepped back from its responsibility. But I think there is a huge role for the church in health care. And who should do it? Pastors, faith-based nurses. And if your church has a Stevens ministry, I think they do a lot in, in the area of, of health care as well. Um, pastors, you know, so many uh, of the health care problems that we see, we don't realize, have underlying spiritual problems. I mean, people who have not been felt forgiven, you know, have guilt and they, they, that builds on, on who they are. And they take, they take it out physiologically. And we're so quick to write a prescription <laughs> for, for those problems. But if we were just take the time and, 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 and assess their spiritual needs and say, God can forgive you and, and, and work through that with them, they could maybe have not need a prescription but have the forgiveness of God in their life. Love and belonging, the spiritual need for having experienced unconditional love. I can't tell you how many people I've worked with who just feel like nobody could love them, and God certainly couldn't either because of the things that they have done 
or not done. And, and having them understand that God loves them unconditionally and that faith is a gift, a free gift, nothing contingent upon that. So we don't spend a lot of time uh, meeting those spiritual needs in our pastors and our Stevens ministers and some of our faith-based nurses are key in doing that. The kinds of health care that they do is spiritual care, moral and ethical teaching, and I think a lot of emotional care that can happen outside of the church. So I don't know if you've seen this, but in the last slides, everything that has happened has not happened in a healthcare facility. And yet, there's a lot that can be done out there in the community. So if you're moving into the community and you have a clinic, your clinic might look like this lady here, or it can look like this clinic that I helped begin in Uganda. But uh, the location of the health services in the clinic. Now, who does these? These are this is where you begin to get your medical providers, the mid-level providers, the certified nursing assistants, the licensed practical nurses, professional nurses, dentists, pharmacists, and even our alternative care providers, those chiropractors and those massage therapists and all those folks that do acupuncture. Um, those are all people in the community doing health care. On, in, a, in a more clinical kind of setting. What do they do? They do prevention. They do health care education. They do some immunizations. They do early detection. They do the screenings. And they do a lot of curative care for the simple diseases. And sometimes they manage complex multi-system diseases in the community if people are well enough to be out there to do that. It isn't until we get to the hospital that we get the major kind of people that come to this conference. The community health centers are those health centers. They're small facilities that have limited services, and, and especially in developing countries. But even here when I was working in rural Mississippi, you know, we have these little community hospitals. They're 30-bed places. They do everything that they can, and they... They, what they can't, they refer on. Where do they refer them to? They refer them to the, the regional health care facilities. So if you're in Cary, Mississippi, you have your little community hospital, and, and if they can't take care of you, they'll send you to Vicksburg where there's a regional health center. That regional health center offers commonly required health services. Um, they, have, they serve an entire region, and they may have smaller health care facilities that feed into them. And then if they can't deal with it, they send you off to Jackson, Mississippi, <laughs> where there's the tertiary care facility. They have the, all the research and the high tech and all that stuff available in Jackson. But if you're in Cary and you have to go to Jackson, that, that's a long ways. And, and there's rivers and, and things that you have to cross to get there. And, and a lot of folks who are poor don't have access to that. So we're, we're looking at how can we now then uh, train people to meet the health care needs of the populations at, at, as best we can. So the first thing I want to talk about is the way we look at community education. The purpose of community education is to promote health and change healthcare be, health behaviors. That's what we want to do. We want to get people caring for their own health as best they can at that level. The focus then becomes on the learner. The evaluation is 
have they been able to change their health behavior? We don't figure we have taught anything in community health unless we have seen a change in behavior. The type of health care is primarily prevention, and the location can take place in the home, the church, or the office. Now, when we're talking about the education of healthcare professionals, the purpose is to educate competent healthcare professionals. We want people to be able to get out there and do what they were supposed to do, what they are paid to do. And they provide excellent healthcare to care recipients. That's our goal. We want to have quality healthcare available to people. Our focus, then, is on the knowledge and skills, especially if you are in a profession such as nursing or medicine or one of the other certified professionals, that you can pass your boards, that you, can, you, you meet the minimum standards for your professional qualification. So your whole educational endeavor is geared to help you pass those requirements and practice safely. The way we evaluate that is we have professional standards of service. Are you meeting those standards? The type of health care is primarily curative. We are all looking at taking care of whatever disease you may present with. And where does this take place? It takes place in clinics, hospitals, and universities. So now we have a, a problem. <laughs> Because we have education for, of healthcare professionals that does not prepare us or teach us how to work in the community and meet the community's health needs. So, how do we go about doing that? How is it different? Well, the content is different. When you're in the community, people don't need to understand the underlying pathophysiology of a disease in order to know what they need to do to help themselves. <laughs> um, they only need the essential information required to change their behavior. Again, the focus is on the health behavior. They need the skills necessary to carry out the behavior change. So we're looking at how do we help people set goals for themselves and make plans and achieve those goals and, and that kind of thing to help that happen. Um, I'm going to go back just a minute about this. One of the things that happens quite often when we do missions and we talk about health education in the community we have healthcare professionals who have been trained in the other model, and, and they go out there and, and they're going to teach about malaria, for example. And, and they have this big poster of, of, a, of a mosquito, uh, and they go through the entire life cycle of the plasmodium parasite. And they talk about how it lives in the mosquito and, and how it bites, when it bites you, it, it goes into your red blood cells and it goes into your liver, and they have this elaborate lecture on malaria. And, you know, it has nothing to do with what I need to do to prevent malaria in my life. The, the, the classic example of that is after this person gets all done, it's reported that many people raise their hands and say, well, we should have no malaria in our community. And they say, why? Well, we don't have mosquitoes that large in our community. <laughs> <laughs> 
so we have to be careful about how we teach and what we teach. And, and that's the, the key, key things. Cultural influences. Um, what we do, what we practice, is largely based on what we value and what we believe. And what we value and what we believe is largely dependent upon our worldview. So if you have a different worldview, if you believe that disease is caused because you have offended some ancestor, you are going to go to the witch doctor and find out which ancestor you have offended, and then you will do whatever that witch doctor tells you to do. And then if there's no result, you might come to the hospital and get some treatment for your your condition. But... They don't understand, I mean, if it's not part of your worldview that germs and uh, other environmental things contribute to your health, you won't understand what you, you know, how this is working. So we prescribe pills. They don't see that any different than what the witch doctor has, has prescribed. They, I had people in Uganda who, who really didn't understand that, these were powerful, powerful medicines. Big pills were for older people. Little pills were for children. Red pills were for girls. Blue pills were for boys. The, when we give them a pill, you know, their, their understanding of how this thing works is, is not there. We really have to consider what the culture is teaching about that. And in order to understand the culture and how things are being perceived, you have to use a different teaching methodology. You cannot use the, the ones that we are traditionally, we are traditionally taught via pedagogical method where, I, like I'm doing now, I'm standing in front of you, I'm talking, and we're giving you information, versus androgyny, uh, androgody rather, that, which is the adult non-formal methodology, having more participatory learning. So we, we use participatory learning uh, in the community. And I had not been taught how to do participatory learning. I mean, this is an art and a skill that was not included in, in my nursing curriculum. I learned it on the way. And the way we did this is we started with what we called a problem-posing starter. We presented a problem to the community, and then we asked them, showed questions. And the showed questions were, this is a mnemonic we use to train our trainers. You ask the question, what did you see? If you present a problem, if you have a drama, for example, um, what did you see in this drama? So everybody understands what, the, what was being presented, and you can correct any misperceptions. Then you ask, what was happening in this situation? And they will tell you what they thought was going on. Then you ask, does that happen in our community? Because you want the, the learner to own the problem. Does this happen in your community? Well, yeah. Can you give me an example? Well, yeah, so-and-so. He doesn't use a latrine, you know. He just goes out to the Matoki and, 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 and does his business out there, and, and he doesn't bother to use the latrine. Then ask the question, why does this happen? Why don't people use latrines? Oh, well, it's, you see, and this is common where I was. Um, if you're a woman, 
you lose your eggs down that hole and you become infertile. So women should not use latrines because that causes infertility. Well, that changes your whole understanding of what's going to happen in the end. And my colleague, who had been married and had no children, she was a widow, and me, who had never married and never had children, we were the prime examples of why you should never use a latrine if you were a woman because, obviously, you know, we had this problem. So we had to, we had to really, really work at saying, you know, it it's, it's, has nothing to do with fertility. Do you know other women who have used latrines that have had children? Well, yeah, there are people who have used latrines and do have children. So how did, you know, why did they not become infertile? We went through all of that as part of this teaching thing. Why does this happen? But that question gives you such insight into the culture and, and is absolutely critical to changing health behavior because if you don't get there, you won't change the behavior because the practice is based on beliefs and on a worldview. What can we do about this? That's the next question. So what, how, do, what, how do we address this problem? What can we as a community do this? And it hasn't been complete until you have defined who is going to do this, when are we going to do this, where is this going to take place, and how are we going to make this happen and we have people actually adopting the health practice. So it isn't enough just to go in and say, I'm giving you information about this disease. You go figure out what you're supposed to do with it. Because we know that information does not lead to change in behavior. How do we evaluate in the community? Like I said, um, there, we, we look for behavior changes, but often we're looking for process, too. So how many homes have a latrine after we've done this health teaching? Can we see an increase in numbers of latrines? Well, that doesn't necessarily mean that the health has improved. So we also have to look at outcome evaluation. How many people are not having uh, diarrheal diseases because we now have people using latrines. So you have both process evaluation and outcome evaluation. I just want to talk a little bit about some of the things that I learned from working in the community. I, I can't begin to un underestimate the place of culture in our, in our communities. And I think here in the United States, um, we have, we're becoming such a multi-diverse, ethnically diverse culture that having understandings of various cultures is important to us as healthcare professionals if we want to really, really provide good healthcare to people. And, and I know that cultural competence is mentioned eight times in the nursing uh, accreditation criteria for nursing schools. Everybody is talking about cultural competency, and that is the reason why you can't make an impact on people's health if you don't understand their culture. Information does not lead to behavior change. To be sustainable in the community, to be sustainable, the community must own the program. Um, so much of what we did overseas was we were just training individuals, but we forgot about mobilizing the community to own these health programs. And, and we were so excited about training health workers in the community 
that we forgot about the community <laughs> who should own the program. And so for us, we had to go back and do village community health committee organ, uh, organization in, in that. So I tell people, spend the time up front, mobilize your community, make sure they are buying into this community health approach and program. If it takes two years, spend the two years doing that because you will not have a sustainable program if the community does not want to continue it on after you leave. The goal is that it continues on after your facilitation has ended, that those health workers are supported by their community and that it continues on. Evaluation needs to be a part of the program. One of the things that we as Christians have not done is we have not built evaluation into our programs. It's a, it costs a bit of money to do evaluation, uh, collecting that data and taking care of that. But more and more, in order to have credibility and build evidence, we're talking about the need to have evaluation and research being done to say what we are doing is, is good practice. How do, how do we make that happen? A biblical worldview forms a very strong foundation for community health. Why? Well, what did Jesus do? Jesus moved about. He went to the people. He didn't wait for the people to come to him. <laughs> he healed their physical needs. He provided for physical care, and he addressed their spiritual needs. And, and I think Jesus is the model for community-based health care. It's training people to move into their communities to address those health needs. To, to go into people's homes is such a privilege, such a privilege. You get to understand what's happening in that home. You get to see things that if you're sitting in the clinic all day, you'll never understand. When I was working in Mississippi, I did WIC certification for some of our moms, and I had a mom who had just delivered a baby, and, and she had come home, and she needed formula for her baby. In Mississippi, they give food. They don't give vouchers. So um, I was going to... They, they didn't have transportation. She was on my way home, so I decided I would, I would stop in and, and see her and the baby, do a, a, a mom and baby assessment, and do her WIC certification for her. And I got into the home, and um, in fact, it wasn't her home, as many things happen in Mississippi. Um, she was staying with a relative. She was homeless. And that home that she was staying in did not have any running water. So they had no access to, to clean water. They were taking a hose from somebody else and getting water and who knows what was there. And she had this little tiny baby she was going to have to make formula for. And we didn't know where the water was coming from. And that changed the whole dynamic because I could get her ready-made formula if I could document that she did not have an access to, to water, which I did then. It meant I had to go back to the clinic and get the right forms and get that all situated. But it was so important that I had gone into that home. If she had come to the clinic, I would have just certified her for WIC and she would have just gone and gotten the baby formula. So... 
getting into people's homes and seeing their, their living situations and what the, the, the problems are for, for folk help us to understand maybe why they're not being compliant, why they're not following our instructions, because there are other things that may be higher priority for them, a lot of uh, difficulties that we are just totally un, unaware of as healthcare professionals waiting in a clinic. So following Jesus' example, having a biblical worldview. I think that having understanding that humans are created in God's image and therefore have dignity. Um, so much of, of when I started working among the poor, a, a colleague of mine said, what if there was one thing you could tell everybody in healthcare, uh, what would it be? And I would say, I said to her, I said, we have to understand the underlying human dignity that all people are created with. And that because of that, they are deserving of our very best. And, and that God cares for them, that they bear God's image. And when we care for them, we are caring for Christ who, lives, who may or <coughs> want to live in that person. And the other thing is, is that the only Christ that they might see is the Christ living in me. And so we bear God's image as Christians, we have Christ dwelling in us. We are given incredible opportunity to be Jesus to the folks that we care for. And if we treat them with dignity and respect, um, that goes a long way. i got to tell you, many of the poor do not feel that. They do not feel worthy of, of being cared for. And, and that's, a, that's a shame. That's a shame. That God is still sovereign. I can't tell you how many times I have called on God and said, I know you are still in control of this situation. You can't imagine what it was like to be in the war in Uganda and have the AIDS epidemic hit at the same time. And losing people to war and to, to disease. And being just, just a lowly, lowly nurse. Who was not Mother Teresa. <laughs> and and I just said to God, you know, you have to you have to take control here. One other thing, God is a redeeming God. Praise His name. I made so many mistakes, and yet He was able to redeem those mistakes and use them for His honor and for His glory. And I thank Him every day that the biggest mistake humanity has ever made in crucifying His Son has been used for my profit. That God calls and equips His people. God never really asked me to be Mother Teresa, (laughs) He only asked me to do what was given to me for that day. And if I do what He has given to me each day, that is all that I can do. The rest has got to be up to him. So what does the future look like? I, I am so excited about the future. Why? Because we are now a global society. i got to tell you, I have a Ugandan friend who worked with me in the AIDS program in Uganda. She currently <laughs> lives in Malawi. She has adopted four Malawi children. She's worked in HIV-AIDS. She 
is the representative for Willow Creek Church in Chicago for Southern Africa. She helps match the church people with the needs in Africa, and she is the liaison for, for that, that product. But her, she's working on her doctorate in the theology of development in Peter Martinsburg in South Africa. She has a sister who worked in Australia, a brother who lives in Sweden, another brother who lives in South Africa, another relative in Canada, one in the UK. She comes here. She stays with me. She is a global citizen. She graduated from Wheaton Graduate School. She has friends from graduate school that are in ministry in Korea, in India, in all these other places. I mean, I look at her and I think, she, she just is all over the globe. And, and there, she's not the only person in my life that is like that. So we are now a global society. And if we ever had any doubt, all we had to do was look at the economic crisis and what the crisis we're still in. And we see how our economies are all tied together. Our health is all tied together. Everything is, we are global. And, and that presents many opportunities for us in healthcare missions. I am excited. This whole online education thing. I mean, my friend Carolyn here did her nurse practitioner degree online, you know. Um, there, I have another colleague uh, who heads the program at Colorado Christian. They're teaching nursing online. <laughs> um, Dr. Vinod Shaw from India has, from the Valor Hospital, done continuing medical education to the EHA hospitals in the north online. We, there are so many things that we could be doing online and keeping health care available to the masses of people and training people that we don't even have to go there if they have a broadband communication. We can do this. When I lived in Uganda, I had a working telephone 10 days out of the six and a half years I lived there. I went back in 2008. Everybody had a cell phone. Everybody had a cell phone. Even the Boda Boda, the little guys who, who taxi drive on the, on the, on the motorcycles, they, they all had their, 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 their cell phones. And they figured out how to charge them and keep that all going. And so, Cell phones, we can use it. They're working on sending text messages to moms to remind them about getting their kids immunized and, and coming to clinics and having outreaches via text telephones. I, this is just amazing to me, what we have come up with. I mean, and it's the progress has been so, so quickly. We can do things like... Um, sending x-rays via email <laughs> and having people make a diagnosis away from that. I'm hearing about robotic surgery where you don't have to be even in the room. You can do it remotely. There, there's all sorts of interesting things that we can do, and I'm looking to all the young people that are here, and I'm saying to you all, figure it out. <laughs> figure it out because God is coming back Jesus is coming back we have, he has given us these tools he intends for us 
to use them to not only care for people's souls, but to also care for their bodies. And, and, and there is just a huge opportunity out there to be caring for people. So thank you. Um, I think I'm, do I have ten, five minutes or what do I have left? Ten minutes. Questions, anything you want to ask me? Yeah. Um, yeah, there, there, there's, I mean, you can do anything from learning on the job like I did, uh, all the way to getting up a a doctoral degree in in participatory learning or, or in, in non-formal education. So there are those resources out there. What we did in Uganda was we, um, we produced books that train trainers and, and that, the CHE model is the model. If you want to have any, any education in how to do community health development, go to the CHE Network or the LifeWin organization, which has developed all sorts of curriculum and training for trainers in this area. No, no, not Che Guevara. It's called Community Health Evangelism or Community Health Education. In closed countries, I think they use Community Health Education and, and, and uh, Christian countries are Christians open to the go- uh, countries open to the gospel. They call it community health evangelism. The history behind that was back in the Alma'ata days um, when we were beginning. Uh, there was a man in East Africa, Dr. Roy Schaefer, whose daughter I taught nursing, and he uh, did the showed method that I showed you and. And, and, and develop some of that. He went around East Africa training people on how to do participatory learning. One of the people he trained was Stan Rowland, who was in, in Uganda. And Stan was working with Campus Crusade, um, which was called Life Ministries in Uganda. And so he married the participatory learning to the Bible study and the four spiritual laws and made it into community health evangelism. And, and then that has taken off. And, and gone around the world through through that network. So, yeah. Medical Ambassadors International does have a booth in the fellowship hall. Are you Medical Ambassadors now, or are you LifeWind? I went back to Medical Ambassadors. Okay, I can't keep up with all the name changes. And, and they are in the fellowship hall on the second Yeah, and John Payne is here. Um, and, and John's wife, uh, Medell, was in, in nursing school ahead of me, year ahead of me. So we're, we're, we were in school together. Um, have a lot of that, yeah. Yeah, that um, I think you know in Uganda we trained people who were illiterate how to do health promotion in the community. Okay, so there there's nothing about any educational minimum requirement for for doing this. What I will say is that the more professional education you have you have more management skills and you have more ability to organize and do organizational development, which is, if you are a missionary, I think is key that we work ourselves out of jobs. We're not there just to do the health teaching, but we should be there to train the, the, the communities how to do their own 
community work. And that takes a little higher level. So I would say that, you know, minimum would be a bachelor's degree. Um, I think if you do work in organizational development or management, that's helpful. I, th I think I tell a lot of nurses um, I wish I had a master's in public health because there's a lot of public health components that I had to learn on the job. Um, how do you do outcome measurement, for example? That's part of epidemiology and figuring out those, those statistics. And if, you ha if, you're, if you're an ADN grad, you haven't had that level of public health. Yeah? So along with that, when you mentioned evaluation, is expensive? What tools are you using and what kind of further education um, or a mini course perhaps that will teach how to do proper evaluation? Well, a lot of times what we, we do is we measure, I mean, you, you can do surveys and see how many households have latrines and how many don't, and then you go back a year later and you say how many households have latrines and how many don't, and if you see a, 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 an uptake in that, that's a process evaluation. That's a simple kind of evaluation. But if you're looking to see incidence of disease and getting an accurate uh, record of, you know, how has uh, the incidence of uh, malaria go down um, in a larger population, that becomes expensive uh, because you have to you have to go out and, and, and collect all that data from all of the health centers and how many people they treated and all that kind of thing and 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 what time frameworks there are and and that. That requires, you know, just uh, some money. It just does. And what kind of education? Is there like a mini course you can take? Or do you feel like an MPH is really? I think an MPH is, is a good start. I, I think some of the, I, I'm, not, I'm not familiar with all the educational processes, but um, I know of, I have a friend who did community health education at the University of Illinois as an undergrad. Um, I think that they would probably cover some of that in, in, in that kind of a course as well. A fundamental. And in basic nursing, we all take, when you're a, a baccalaureate level nurse, you, you have a course in public health, and we go through some of the basics of that. You can have a basic foundation, but when it gets to, you know, appreciative inquiry and, and participatory um, kinds of evaluation methodologies and, and looking at the research of that, that's, that's a little higher level, and, and we do need that. We need that desperately. And we need people prepared to do that. Because more and more, our colleagues in the secular world are saying, prove to us that what you are doing makes a difference. And if we can't do that as Christians, then we don't have any credibility. And so I would just say, please do that. Yeah. I know, like, here in the States, when we do research, we have to have an IRB to protect. Mm -hmm. Do they have something like that? Yes, they do. Yes, they do. And in my work in Uganda, I sat on the Patient Care and Ethics Subcommittee of the National Control Program for AIDS. And one of my big, big complaints was all the researchers who came to Uganda and thought that they did not need to follow those, those protocols. And again, it gets back to the fact that people in Uganda are created in God's image. You know, you don't use them for experimental purposes. And, and, and they, you know, informed consent is a right. And, and we as Christians should not be overlooking those things. If anybody should be advocating for them, it should be us. But I have to tell you, um, I was I, I <laughs> presented many times 
with research proposals that I asked, you know, where, where, where's the informed consent for this? And who is the, the, the board back home that has approved this? Uh-uh. You know, AIDS is such a, a big crisis, and it's such an important thing. We need to get answers quickly. We don't have time to do all this, this stuff. And, and oh, I, you know, I, I saw red. I can't tell you how many times. I had to bite my tongue a lot. And it had also, you know, later on after I left, there were a lot of um, research into some of the new pharmacology and stuff like that that was all being done in Uganda because it had been the first sub-Saharan African country to open its doors to WHO and, and, and really had to work hard to make sure that we, we explain to them that they they had responsibilities. Yeah. Uh, how do you provide uh, health care for people who, without transportation or in rural area? The uh, there's <laughs> yeah it's a, it's a huge problem. It's a huge problem. We what we did in in, in Mississippi is we we trained the we trained three women who had vehicles. And they would go to the homes of the mothers that did not have transportation and visit them in their homes so that they could check on their, their babies and check on them to make sure that they were okay. And then when we had education programs or when we had a clinic day, we had a van that went around and picked people up and brought them to the clinic uh, in Vicksburg, all the way in Vicksburg. That was 37 miles. So women who were living in trailers in the middle of the cotton fields in Mississippi had no transportation, who were being aerial applicated with defoliants for the cotton um, were the people that we were working with. Yeah. Can you say anything more about community ownership and sustainability and how that magic thing happens? Yeah, it's... um, Again, that was one of those redeeming things that God did. When I went back to Uganda, um, it was 14 years, and I met up with a man that I had trained as a trainer. And he had gone into the community in Mukono, had mobilized that community, had built a little clinic, a health center, had trained hundreds of AIDS counselors and community health workers, they were caring for 1,500 AIDS patients in the community. Now, if I had done it, it would, and I, when I left, it would have been finished. But because he mobilized that community and he rallied the churches and the people and got them supporting it and I had trained him how to write some grants. So he got some money. He was Seventh-day Adventist, so he got some money from ADRA. And he got some money from USAID. And he got money from some Swedish folks they had visited. <laughs> um, he, he, he was a good promoter. So it wasn't always just the community. There were outside funding. The joint medical stores and, and, and PEPFAR were providing him the drugs uh, for treating HIV. But generally, the community ran that program and owned it. Yeah. Yeah. So you mentioned on your website, the, the PowerPoint? It's the mission, the, this conference website. 
yeah, the conference website, I just, just before I came, I uploaded the whole PowerPoint. And it's under this title and, 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 and my name. Yeah, and you're free to take whatever you want to, to use out of that. I think we're, we're done with time, but thank you all for coming. And if I can assist any of you, please contact me in the future.